So today we're going to speak on Genesis 1, I'm sorry, 3, 1 through 6. And um, uh, you all know that I tend to get a little over technical on sermons at times, and it's something that I simply cannot help. I, uh, I, I believe that God's Word is to be handled properly and to be handled carefully. And if it means getting a little deep like today is, I apologize, but it's the only way that I can present it without feeling that I haven't neglected God's Word in some important way. I do not believe in theatrical theology, and I don't believe in pulpit performances. I'm not here to entertain people. I'm here to take God's Word and to explain it to you. And so I, I'm not apologizing for the difficulty of this particular sermon, but I want you to know that I understand when people get confused by these things, but to me, it's the only way to properly handle God's Word is to open it and preach from it properly. So we're going to go ahead and uh, give a quote from Albert Einstein, but before I do, this is called this sermon is called, Who is the Liar? Albert Einstein said, If you are out to describe the truth, leave elegance to the tailor. Today we are going to look at where truth was first called into question. The question that we often hear is, is truth, uh, what is true for you, not necessarily true for me? Or is truth even knowable at all? And we get these type of questions and people like to play with words and to call truth into question, uh, but we can know truth. The question is, if truth is presented, how can we know if the elegant trimmings that Einstein mentioned have a subtle and a cunning purpose of twisting it? It is, to me personally, very scary to think how easily we can be manipulated by words which sound correct, but which are so wrong. And what we need to do is to think clearly. But in our society, we are not taught to think clearly. People say, oh yeah, I think clearly. But I can tell you that the most difficult college course that I ever had while I was in college was called critical thinking. And it was simply to teach us how to think clearly. And it, it was immensely difficult once I realized how unclearly we normally think to actually get thinking clearly. And that is the way of our society. When we do teach thinking clearly or critical thinking, it's usually only a simple subject and not a general guide or rule of how we should conduct our lives. It's just something they put off to the side and say, if you want to take this course. But it's something that we should be teaching even from when children are young. The book of Proverbs says, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. What that means is that here we are, we're having a uh, uh, discussion with somebody and he's pleading his case and we think, yeah, that sounds right. And then somebody else comes along and questions him and pleads his side of the case. And the next thing you know, you think, well, was that right or was that right? And it is often very hard to determine truth and where it's coming from. If we attempt to use clear and rational thinking in a class on, say, global warming, we are probably going to get a failing grade. That's all there is to it. If we challenge a theory such as evolution, once again, here's a big fat F for you because people say that this is true even when there's no evidence to support it. And that's what we do is we diminish truth in order to promote lies in our society. Our very first parents were presented with challenges to the truth and they did not handle it very well. Their choices, which were based on bad decision making, have resulted in everything from Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler to the uh, things that they espouse, such as communism and fascism. They have caused us, Adam and Eve, not Stalin, even though they did also, but 
Adam and Eve's bad decisions have caused us to lose little babies through death, to lose spouses through divorce, and every other evil and wicked thing that has happened on this planet and continues to happen day in and day out comes from the bad decisions of our first parents. Despite the depressing circumstances, though, in which the fall of man was surrounded and all of the subsequent woes since that time, without the fall, we would never have been able to appreciate the goodness and the glory of God. There's just no way about it. There was no mistake in God's plan then, and there is no mistake in God's plan now. Every single one of us faces trials in life, including my own trials. You know, I got back aches and I have to keep moving when I'm preaching. If I don't, my back starts hurting. A, you know, some of us have business problems. Some of us have family problems. All of these things will be used by God for his glory and for the benefit of those who have called. And if you can truly accept that premise, then what Adam and Eve should not, what they did should not make you kick at their memory and say, oh, stupid, stupid, stupid. How could they have done this stupid thing? Instead, we should look back at what happened at the fall of man and say, my God, how great you are. That's just the way it is. Here's our text verse for today. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's from the book of James. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is a cunning foe twisting things around. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Chapter three starts out with the tempter, the serpent, whom we later in the Bible find out is Satan or the devil. And he remains an unfolding part of the story of the Bible almost to the very end. Not until Revelation chapter 20 is he done away with. And if you look at the symmetry, he makes his appearance three chapters into the Bible and he makes his exit three chapters from the end of the Bible. The symmetry of the Bible never ceases to amaze me. I never even thought of this until I prepared for this sermon, how the devil appears and then disappears. It's simply a wonderful book if we just look into a little bit. In this verse though, it says, he was more cunning than any beast of the field. The devil's cunning brings about a hugely complicated issue. If God created the devil and the devil caused evil, then did God cause evil? Now, I'm going to address this issue right now, and we'll get into it a little bit. And then our last point, I will get into the final resolution of it. It's complicated, though, so bear with me as we talk about it. To answer it, though, is one of the most important issues that any of us can ever determine and Nothing, and I mean nothing, could be more relevant than than where did this evil come from. St. Augustine said that there is no possible source of evil except good. Evil is simply an absence of good. And this only comes from something else drawing it out of the good state that it was originally in. But whatever draws it out of the good state that it is in is good as well. As Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian says, only good can be a cause. 
because nothing can be a cause except in as much as it is a being and every being as such is good. That goes back to the first principles we talked about at Genesis 1-1, that there must be a first cause and then everything that he causes is good in and of itself and that's borne out by the Bible. What he means here though is that nothing can cause something unless it is a being and every being created by God was good at the creation. And when we understand this, we see that good doesn't cause evil, which is contrary to itself. It causes evil in something else. And as I said, we'll really define that more in point four today. In the case of the devil, he was created good. However, something else drew the evil out of him. Something good drew the evil out of him. And the question is, what good could draw the evil out of the devil? The answer is found in Isaiah chapter 14 and it's found in Ezekiel chapter 28. Now both of these passages are speaking about the king of Babylon in Isaiah and the king of Tyre in Ezekiel. But people have applied them to the devil over the centuries because the premise is exactly the same. Here's what it says in Isaiah 14. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And then in Ezekiel, it says this about the king of Tyre. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. The good which the devil saw in the rule and authority of God is what drew out the envy, the evil of envy in him. And then his own beauty and his own splendor in comparison to others is what drew out the evil of pride. The good in God and the good of his creation is what drew out the evil. What God intended for his creation is the good order of that creation. However, the good order of that creation requires that some things are going to fail. Stars exploding, for example, or this tree got hit by lightning, it died, it falls into the earth, it uh, makes mulch, and then flowers come out. Evil things come out of a good creation by necessity of that creation. So God causes in the things the proper order of the universe and by nature of that proper order, by accident, things will corrupt. It says in 1 Samuel 2, 6 this, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. But God did not make Adam and Eve for the sake of death. He made Adam and Eve to be alive and to live. Death, however, is the result of justice, which is required based on the nature of the universe and in turn based on the nature of God. This requires, this justice requires that sinners are to die. That's just the way it is. The result is that God is the author of the evil that we know as penalty, but he is not the author of the evil we know as fault. In other words, we say that penalty is evil. Somebody is executed for doing wrong. We say that's evil. In and of itself, it's not evil. He is justly executing this person based on the fault that came from the creation. This evil can only come from a lesser being, 
as I'll explain later. So I hope you'll bear with me on this. I know it's a little complicated, but when you see how it works out, you will see that God is not the ultimate author of evil. Once he was corrupted, the devil, through no fault of God, he went about his business of corrupting God's crown of creation, which is man. And the question is, why would he do this? It's for the same reasons as I already explained, because of envy, because of boasting, and because of pride. By subverting God's authority over the physical world, he would gain rule over the physical world. Man was given dominion over the creation. We read that in the previous account. If he was able to subvert man then, man would become his. He would move from God to the devil. He wanted to rule and he wanted to be like God and this is how he was going to do it. And this is proven, believe it or not, in the devil's tempting of Jesus, which I will talk about a little bit later, because he said to Jesus, all of this rule, all of this authority, all of this beauty has been given to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. And if you will worship me, then I will give it to you. So it's proven in the Bible by itself that the devil gained rule over the creation by subverting man's rule over that creation. When man fell, the devil gained rule over the earth. The first words that the devil spoke to the woman came from a being that is perfectly described in the verse we're looking at. He is called cunning there. He said, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? But this isn't at all what God said. It's not even close. What God said was of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The devil knew, he knew that he couldn't destroy man as he was because the natural order of things says that in order to die, a person must sin. He also knew that if they couldn't eat of every tree of the garden, that man would be forced to sin because man by nature needs to eat. And so by saying it the way he did, it's a subtle attack against God's authority. If you're not forbidden from eating from every tree because that would result in death, then how could eating from just one tree result in death? Come on, girl, think it through. As Matthew Henry said so well, the divine law cannot be reproached until it is first misrepresented. I hope you understood what Matthew Henry is saying there. It is a very good lesson for us today. When we hear people telling us what the Bible says, we need to check it out for ourselves because it is hugely easy to fall into the trap of the prosperity gospel or idol worship or a host of other things that are taught openly in churches simply because it is misrepresented to people who don't go and check their Bibles to make sure that what they're hearing is actually correct. This is the way the devil works. It's just how it works. Balaam who is recorded in the uh, book of Numbers, was told by God that he could not curse Israel. He was not allowed to curse Israel. So he came against Israel simply by tempting them. And the devil did exactly the same thing. He had to tempt them to sin. And once they sinned, they would be under his authority and man would also start to die. As Jesus himself said, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. If Adam, who is the federal head of mankind, could be one, then all mankind was his. And the devil was going to do it through the woman when the man wasn't present. She was created from him, and as we saw last week, she is the weaker vessel. And not only that, if you remember from a sermon about three weeks ago, women process 
their information differently. You remember I gave those points on the difference between men and women's brains? I, there's no mistake in what we were doing. We were building up to a point with that particular sermon. Women, and there's nothing diminishing about this either. This is just simply the way that it is. Women process differently. In both problem solving and in reacting to stressful situations, the woman is the ideal target for the devil's cunning work. By coming to her, he would have the position of working against those processing abilities in a way that would not work with the man. And watch out, Eve. I'll tell you something, the devil is coming at you in a way which will make you think that he is looking out for your best intentions. And this is how he worked back then, and this is still how he works today. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, the angel for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. His tricks never change. Our second thought for today is subtracting from or adding to. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. There are a couple of things that we need to consider in what the woman said to the serpent. And what is said here, I have to infer. I want you to know that this is something that I am making a deduction about. It's not what the Bible actually says. So I don't want to add to God's word. I'm giving you a reasonable deduction from the account. Chapter 2 records the necessary information. The first is this. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second verse is, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. As I said, what I'm going to say here is based on assumptions, and I'll explain each one as we go. What I just read from chapter 2, though, is all that is recorded as the necessary information here. In other words, I don't want to make any unfounded conclusions. I'm only making logical deductions. Say that twice so that you understand. I'm not trying to add to God's word here. The woman said this, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. This differs completely from chapter 2, because chapter 2 says this, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. If you notice the difference, the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But chapter two said, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Already, after hearing what the devil said, she almost repeated back to him what he said with a little bit of difference. Her defenses have been weakened by the subtle attack of the devil coming in and misrepresenting what God said. She has waffled on what was given to her by God. Also, she said this, but of the tree of the of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. But chapter says the tree of life and the tree of knowledge are in the midst of the garden. There are two trees, not one. She simply noted that she couldn't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden without making a differentiation between the fact that there are two trees. Her defenses show the weakness of not processing what God said and repeating it back exactly in the way that God related to her. What is good in her, as you can see, is being drawn out of her as evil. Think of it this way, okay? Your dad tells your brother, your dad tells your brother that there are two women in the house down the road and that one is engaged and one isn't, and to leave the engaged girl alone. So your brother then comes to you and he says, Dad says you can have any girl in Sarasota you want as a wife, but leave the one in the house down the road alone. Okay, it's exactly the same premise. When the devil comes up to you and says, did your dad say you can't go out with any girl in Sarasota? 
if you answer to him, oh no, I can date any girl I want except the girl in the house over there, you have set yourself up for trouble. He knows very well that there are two girls in the house down the road and he is only going to tempt you with the engaged girl. That's the way the devil works. That's the way he worked in the garden and the example is exactly the same premise. When God spoke to Adam in chapter two, it does not mean that there weren't more conversations with more details later. But we need to remember the general rule here. Everything recorded is for our understanding of what happened and why. So we can make this deduction that Adam told the woman what God said and he was not as clear as he should have been or that she simply didn't pay attention. Either way, we can trust that what is said in chapter two is accurate. Either way, what the woman said because of that is inaccurate. If this is the case, then let's review those errors. God said they could freely eat, but she only said they may eat. That may seem inconsequential, but elsewhere in the Bible, the words free or freely are used to indicate divine grace, such as in Romans 3.24, where it says this, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul could have simply said justified by his grace, and it wouldn't have made any real difference, but he added the word freely to indicate the superbly gracious nature of what was involved in the gift. And the woman left this out either accidentally or thoughtlessly. A second omission is what I said a second ago, that but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, there were two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, and the tree of life was not forbidden to them, only the tree of knowledge. Assuming these are her words as she spoke them, and we have every reason to do that, this is a gigantic, a gigantic error. And it's one that proves the subtlety of the devil because later he never brings up the tree of life in his conversation at all. So it does prove that he is working against her good to draw out her evil. He only brings up the, knowledge, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one third change that we have is not an omission, but rather it's an addition. She said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. But chapter two says nothing about touching the fruit. It only warns them not to eat it. Now, admittedly, and once again, God could have had on another conversation at another time with them not to touch the fruit, but this would leave something missing out of the account in Genesis 2. And so I'm making a reasonable deduction that Genesis 2 is accurate and it's all that we need in order to understand Genesis chapter three. So when we get to the next verse, once again, the devil never mentions touching it, but only eating of it. And for this reason, it, I believe it's a logical deduction. God is showing us how good things can be manipulated so easily. The reason why it's important, these things that I'm picking over is because this is God's word. That's the important thing here. This is God's word. And they are the only words at this point, that one sentence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can, that one sentence is the only direction that we have for mankind at this time. That is Adam's life's instructions at this point. And that one sentence is misrepresented and you see the trouble it's caused. How much more when we've got a Bible of 66 books and thousands and thousands of verses in it, how we can be so easily manipulated by people. It says, I'm gonna read it to you for a third time so you can listen to it. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is all of Adam's instructions. 
the Lord could have conversed with him on a dozen other subjects about birds or about the length of Eve's hair or anything else. But God has shown us that this verse, this one verse is what is important to the account and the woman has negligently misrepresented it. The lesson for us here is to remember Proverbs chapter 30 verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. That's how important this issue is. Our third thought for today is mixing truth with lies. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent first says, you will not surely die, or literally, no dying, you will die. In Hebrew, it says, lo mote mutun. This is a bald-faced lie. This is the first actual complete lie from him. But I want to tell you, before I go on, this is something a little addition to my notes here, is that in Genesis chapter 3, every time God is mentioned, it says the Lord God or Jehovah Elohim. Every single time, except when the serpent speaks, and then he only says God. He is using the unknown, unseen God of Colossians 1, and he's saying, this God that you really don't know, you see how he's, he's diminishing it? Because the Lord God is the one that walks in the garden with him, and he's making a distinction here. He's very cunning in what he does. He calls the Lord's integrity into question with this lie, and he challenges his authority 100% and completely. The serpent denies that there is any danger in disobeying. It may be a transgression, but there isn't going to be any penalty is basically what he's saying. The second thing that he says, believe it or not, is actually true. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It says later that their eyes were opened and they became like God, knowing good and evil. So he wasn't lying there. The problem is that Adam and the woman were not told this. It was something that God held back for his own purposes. The purpose of placing Adam and the woman in the garden was, as we discussed before, was to rest and so that they could worship and serve him. To the woman, being like God meant that she and Adam would be worshiped and served. So you can imagine her wheels turning over that one. Ooh, doesn't that sound good? The devil has tempted her with pride and he has also revealed something that God did not reveal to her. And the question she's probably asking is, what else has he kept from me? You can just see it in her head as she's, she's thinking this over, processing her with her, her brain working on both sides of the hemisphere instead of men on the left who would think this out a little differently. Not accusing ladies, it's just the way it is. And Chapter 10 of the book of Revelation, we read this. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Paul, in his writings, speaks of the mystery of the blindness of the Jews. He speaks of the mystery of the church. He speaks of the mystery of the gospel. He speaks of other mysteries as well that are hidden in the wisdom of God. In all of these examples, the Revelation one, the one that Paul has, and so many more in the Bible, God keeps certain things hidden for us for our good 
He does it in order to unveil his own plan in his own timing and also to satisfactorily bring about what he determines. This was also the case with Adam and the woman in the garden. He was doing it for the good of his creation. Having the knowledge of good and evil was a mystery to them. And the fact that they would be like God in this respect was kept from them for their own good. But by his cunning, the devil will undermine what he cannot actively overthrow. And this is the pattern that he always follows. He gets people to doubt God first and then eventually to deny him. He starts with skeptics and he ends with atheists. That's the plan of the devil. He's done it in people, he does it in families, he does it in societies, and he even accomplishes it in seminaries and in churches all over the world. In people and families, he does it through tragedy, he does it through death. Maybe you have a loved one, you've got a little baby and the baby dies and you think, oh, God isn't good and the devil is in there. He's calling God's goodness into question and eventually people just get up and walk away from the faith altogether because the devil has put this in them instead of them reading their Bibles and understanding that God's plan is an infinitely wise one. They look at their own circumstances and they listen to the devil speaking into their hearts. In societies, he works against goodness and truth, bringing once God-honoring cultures, and we can see this in our own nation right now, into apathy, and eventually into destruction. In England, get this, Charles, the Prince of Wales is planning a symbolic change of his title from defender of the faith to defender of faith when he becomes king. He's doing this because he wants to reflect Britain's multicultural values and their multicultural society. And this would mean that the supreme governor of the Church of England would no longer be known as defender of the faith, meaning Christianity, for the first time since Henry VIII. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but defender of faith means the defender of anything and therefore the defender of nothing. That's just the way it is. In seminaries, the devil has taken these great, great institutions that were founded on the gospel message, Princeton and Harvard and Yale and all of our Ivy Leagues, uh, schools and so many others in America were started out as theological seminaries with one goal, to get pastors ready to go out into the country and preach the gospel. He has taken them and he has turned them into bastions of secular humanism and worldly lies. They fill the students full of global warming, they fill them full of evolution and all of these other lies. And I've got to tell you what, this is how the devil does it. He has also done it in churches. He does it all the time in our churches around the world, and he has done it since the very beginning. If you read Paul's letters, if you read Jude's letters, or Peter's letters, or John's letters, they are warning, I mean from the very beginning, about people that are creeping in and trying to change the purity of God's word. Paul, in the book of Galatians, the first epistle, is on this very subject. People coming in and trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Within one generation of Jesus Christ walking on earth, he wrote seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation, five of which had fallen either partially or almost completely under the dominion of Satan. Today, once Christ-honoring denominations, we all know, they're filled with homosexuality, they're filled with abortion rights, and they're filled with New Age spiritualism. And this is not to say that people are, those people are not allowed to hear the gospel. I'm talking about people in the pulpit that are pronouncing these things. I'm not talking about the people come that 
are homosexuals or whether they're new age spiritualists. They need Jesus Christ too. That's not who I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people that are preaching these things from the pulpit. Jesus reveals to us in the book of John, he says this, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. And that brings us to our final point today. His song remains the same. In our sermon in chapter two, verses 16 and 17, we ask the question, whence cometh evil? And the answer, which I was very clear about, was it comes from free will. But the obvious question is, and I kind of addressed it earlier, if God created man and he created man with free will, and free will is the cause of evil, then did not God cause evil? We did mention that they did it in a state of innocence, but that wasn't a full explanation of the problem of evil, and we couldn't get to it until we got to this particular passage. If free will was simply the answer to the problem, people would comprehend it. They wouldn't argue over it, but it's a very complicated issue. The Bible says this in 1 John 5:19: We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. How did this come about and fit into God's plan without God being the author of this evil. In order to completely understand it, believe it or not, we have to go all the way back to, I mentioned him earlier, to Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian. The guy had a mind that was immense. He was one of the most intelligent people and what he writes is so complicated, most people can't even grasp it. But I spent quite a bit of time reading his work on this particular issue. Here's what he says. Evil never follows in the effect unless some other evil pre-exists in the agent or matter. But in voluntary things, the defect of the action comes from the will actually deficient, inasmuch as it does not actually subject itself to its proper rule. This defect, however, is not a fault, but fault follows upon it from the fact that the will acts with this deficit. Now, whether you got that or not doesn't matter. I can tell you it is astonishingly profound. And the Bible, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, bears it out completely and 100%. Here's what he says. I'll try to break it down for you. The defect of the action, in this case, the eating of the fruit, which is a defect of the action, comes from the will actually deficient. Well, what was deficient in the will of Adam and the woman? It was the lack of the knowledge of good and evil. They were in a state of innocence. But was this God's fault? No. Aquinas says it is deficient in as much as it does not actually subject itself to proper rule. So what was the proper rule concerning their state of innocence? It was to obey the Creator and not to eat the fruit. It was that simple. They simply didn't obey what they were told to do. When they disobeyed by using their free will, it was because of a fault, was it because of a fault in them as created by God? The answer is no. Here's what we have. It is not a fault, according to Aquinas, but fault follows upon it from the fact that the will, meaning their free will, acts with this defect. In this instance, the blame is placed solely and squarely on man. This defect as we perceive it, was a part of what was very good in them on the sixth day of creation. We went through all six days. At the end of the day, God created everything very good. Creating a man with no knowledge of good and evil is called a defect by Aquinas. We'll use the term lack to help you understand it a little bit better. Just because there was a lack in these beings doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with it. 
when Adam and the woman acted against the proper rule with this lack of knowledge, it resulted in fault, meaning sin. And fault, as you know, resulted in death. And our text first can be understood a little bit more clearly now, and then I'm going to explain it again after this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when sin is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So I'm going to give you another example to help you understand this. My mom and I were talking about this on the way back from a church in Wachula about three weeks ago, and she wasn't understanding it, so I thought up a couple examples to help you process this a little bit better. If the Bible is the Word of God, and it is absolutely perfect, and it is, but there are people that disagree on issues. Say, here's an issue, uh, Jesus is God, and some people say Jesus isn't God. Our lack of understanding what the Bible says in, in this context, is Jesus God or is Jesus not God? Our lack of understanding it and then turning around and teaching it wrong is sin. But it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We have the instructions in the Bible that explain it very clearly to us, just like Adam did. Therefore, evil can result from two good things. I'm a guy. I love God. I want to know what he's like. I read his Bible, which is perfect and yet evil is drawn out of it because of a misunderstanding of what's in the Bible. I thought of another example while I was doing this. I'd like to give it to you, and this should really seal it for you if you don't understand it yet. I have the original text of the Bible, as was received by the prophet, and it's written out, and it is perfect, letter for letter, exactly the way God intended it originally, okay? It's sitting right here. And then somebody comes up to me and they say, Charlie, we've got this original text, and it's getting old, and we want to make a new copy. I'm a plumber. And I don't understand scribal techniques very well. But I say, okay, I'll do that. I am a perfect plumber. The Lord made me a plumber, and that's what I do really well. But I say, okay, I'll do that for you. So I go, and I sit down, and I start making a new copy of the Bible. And my eyes skip over sentences. My eyes skip over words. My eyes skip over letters. And I make errors throughout it. I have now produced something which is, has evil in it, even though it was perfect at the beginning. And I am perfect in what I do as a plumber. I am not perfect in this instance. God did not make me as a scribe. God did not make Adam and Eve with the knowledge of good and evil. It's his priority how he shapes us. We are vessels, we are the potter, and we are the clay and he is the potter. Okay. Do you understand how this is working? Two good things can result in evil. This is the way of the world right here. So now we can evaluate our final verse of the day. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. The devil seized upon the opportunity to draw out of the woman's lack, meaning her lack of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he did, he drew out disobedience, which resulted in fault and this fault resulted in death. And I mean death for every human being ever since then. Evil entered the world because of two good things working against each other. Forget the devil. He was faulted on his own through other good things, but two good things bringing out evil. And the mode, the three modes that he used to draw out this lack of evil in Eve, the first was the lust of the flesh, when she saw that the tree was good for food. 
The second was the lust of the eyes, when she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. And the third is the pride of life, when she saw that it was a tree desirable to make one wise. This one verse right here is the complete example of every sin that has ever been committed in human history. Every single sin, any sin that you recognize in yourself or in another person will stem from right here. And how effective is it? I'll tell you how effective. The Apostle John in his first epistle, which is 62 books into the Bible, all the way towards the end of the Bible says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now remember, the world was given to man. Man had dominion over the world and Satan usurped that and so man went under Satan. And therefore the entire world is under Satan's sway. So this is the point he's making. Do not love the world because it's under Satan's sway or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he says this, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Not only is this the prime example of worldly sin, but John addresses it in exactly the same order of categories as we see in the book of Genesis. It's exactly the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It worked in Eden, and it works in each and every human being to this day. That's just the way it is. But John gives us the remedy to this problem in his very next verse when he says this, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. But this does bring us to another dilemma, and you know I've brought this up before. If the pattern of sin has infiltrated every human being on earth since Adam, then how can we do the will of God and abide forever? We've already sinned. We already stand condemned. And this is a destiny deciding thing. And it seems hopeless if you think it through, but yes, there is hope. God has not left humankind without a remedy. We can enter Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. After his baptism, Jesus was led into the spirit in the wilderness. I told you I was gonna to get to this. He was tempted by Satan in exactly the same manner as the woman was tempted. Let's read it together. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. This is the temptation of the flesh. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all of this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all this will be yours. This is the temptation of the eyes. He sees the world out in front of him. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That is the temptation of pride. He followed the exact same pattern against Jesus, that he did in the garden and the same one that John warns about afterward, point by point, exactly the same. During these three temptations, the devil twisted God's word, he mishandled it, and he misapplied it in an order, in an attempt to subvert what God had given us. 
And at the same time, he used the same old tricks against Jesus, but it was Jesus who prevailed and it was the devil who failed. Jesus was defeated at his own game. And there are two ways for each of us to be able to defeat the devil as well. The first is to do what Jesus did every single time he was tempted, to properly quote and to properly apply scripture to the situation. But you can only do this if, if you know your Bible. If you don't know your Bible, you cannot understand what the devil is doing in your life. And I'm talking about on any level, going through a red light. It doesn't matter what the situation is. If you are not aware of what God intends for you, no matter how small the issue, you will fail. You have to know your Bible for every single issue. And that's why I love when people come to sermons. I love when people go to Bible studies because they are learning how to defend themselves against what is a real evil entity in the universe today, which is the devil. All right? If you don't know your Bible, you are setting yourself up for destruction. That's all there is to it. But even if you are well-armed, it doesn't take care of the other problem that we already face. As I said, we've already sinned. We've already failed the test. How can we do the will of God and abide forever? The answer is Jesus. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom you sent. This is the Christmas story, by the way. This is God coming down. He's already seen us screw up his creation. We've turned our back on him, we've sinned against him, and we've violated every possible precept that we can every time that we get the chance to do it. And yet, despite that, he comes down out of eternity and he unites with human flesh. And he becomes this little helpless baby in a manger that we're gonna celebrate in the next seven days. This little baby that created the universe is laying there breathing the air that he created. And he is whining to a mother that he created before eternity even existed or before the universe even existed. Mary was already in the mind of God and yet he came down and he became a part of her. And then he was born into this little stall, this little stable in this place where the lambs and the cows go to get a lapping of water and he's laying there helpless, demonstrating that he is willing to do something that is the most incredible thing in the world that he would come and live this life that you and I couldn't live. And he went through every single temptation, every single trial, every single problem that we have ever faced, he went through as well. And guess what? He didn't have air conditioning. He didn't have a car to get to work. He didn't have any of the conveniences that we do today. He lived, she can tell you, he can tell you, it is very hot in Israel. He lived in the heat, he lived in the sweat, he lived with flies around him. And all of the trouble that you and I face in our lives, this is what Jesus Christ went through. And when he came to the end of his life, he still hadn't sinned, and he could have just said, well, I'm done with this. Instead, he gave his life up on a cross to prove that he had satisfied the demands of the law, which he had written. So it's not too burdensome for anybody, but we still fail at it. But he satisfied that, and then he says, all I want you to do is for you to put your trust in what I have done. I created you, I know what's best for you, and I know that you're gonna screw it up on your own, and you cannot work your way back to me. It's not gonna happen. So he lived that life that we can't live. He gave his life up in exchange for ours. God poured out his wrath on him, and now we have a choice. Call on the name of Jesus Christ, or be eternally separated from God. And it all goes back to the verses we're evaluating today, because we initiated the turning away, not God. He has been there with us ever since, working out his plan of redemption in human history. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Cunning and sly is our foe. He waits to set an evil snare. The serpent hisses, his moves are slow, but when he pounces, it's a tragic affair. He searches for whom he may devour and masks himself as an angel of light. He is an enemy of terrifying power, and to steal man's soul is his delight. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who appeals to our faults. He is the leader of every false religion and the one behind disobedient cults. He engages us in mortal battle and leads men astray like lowing cattle. The unsuspecting are easy prey, but the wise stand in the safety of the Lord. Though he can easily ruin our day, he cannot prevail over the holy sword. Stand firm then in the Lord Jesus, who triumphed o'er the wicked foe. By his blood he did purchase us, in his strength and in his power we will go. Hail to the Lamb of God on the serpent's head he did trod. Though tempted thrice he stood fast and gained man's freedom from certain hell. At the cross it was finished at last, when once again with God we can dwell. Call on Jesus, who will save your soul. When you accept the gospel story, then through heaven's gates you will stroll, praising the God of everlasting glory. Thanking you, God, for the chance to preach your word and to tell about the fall of man, the thing that we did which offended you, and yet in your amazing beauty and marvelous mercy, you did send Jesus to reconcile us to you. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for it. We accept it by faith, and we know that when we do, we are eternally yours. We have moved from Adam and the power of the devil to Jesus Christ and the power of God unto salvation. Thank you for that gift, and we love you. We praise you. All hail the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.